Rejoice, the Lord is King. It's a commandment to rejoice. Rejoice evermore, we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, rejoice in Philippians chapter 4. If you're not joyful, you have a spiritual problem. Asaph wasn't joyful until he went into the house of the Lord in Psalm 73. And then he realized again by being reminded of the greatness of the Lord and that the Lord would deliver him out of this life and into his eternal presence forever and ever. He said, I was as foolish and dumb as a beast to have been unthankful, ungrateful, and discontented with my lot in life. And by the time you get to the end of Psalm 73, Asaph has it all together. And he is saying, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but thou art the strength of my life and my heart. And the Lord ought to be that to all of us. Let's turn to that little minor prophet of Nahum. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. The minor prophets, they're hard to find. They're not very large, but they're part of the Word of God. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Because we want to have the faith in God that this book teaches us to have. There are two books of the Bible that are dedicated entirely to the consideration of the city of Nineveh. That's the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum, the one that we're looking at here. You can tell from the first four words what this book is about. And I'm thankful when the Holy Spirit makes it that easy. If you hadn't put those four words there and you wouldn't have been able to find the word Nineveh in the other chapters, you might have wondered what city, what enemy, what particular circumstances were under consideration. But we know the city of Nineveh. For those of you that printed off the map or looked at maps in the back of your Bible, you were able to find the city of Nineveh over in Mesopotamia. You know, the world calls Mesopotamia the cradle of civilization, the fertile crescent. It was a very, very prosperous part of the world. They don't know why it's the cradle of civilization, but you do. Do you? Why is it the cradle of civilization? Because that's where the Garden of Eden was. We know exactly where the Garden of Eden was. It was in what is presently called Iraq, and there's no more Eden there. Everything you read about our poor troops over there, it's sand and dust. And a little bit more of sand and dust. And sand and dust and heat. It was once the Garden of Eden. We know that because when we go into the book of Genesis chapter 2, we're told the Garden of Eden had four rivers coming out of it. And those four rivers were included, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. In Genesis chapter 2, and it said that the Tigris River, there called the River Hittichel, went toward the east of Assyria. And if you look on a map and find out where Assyria was and where the Tigris River flows, you say, praise be to God. You know, he told us these things far in advance of those who drew maps of that part of the world. The city of Nineveh, the Bible tells us in the book of Jonah, that it was an exceeding great city of Three days' journey. It was 60 miles around that city. Three days' journey to get around it, we're told in the book of Jonah. We're told that its population was so large that the Lord told Jonah in the last verse, 
Are there not 120,000 children in that city who don't know the difference between the left and the right hand? That's a large city. It was a great enemy of Israel and Judah, especially Israel. It was a great empire. It stretched all the way from Persia, what we would call Iran today, all the way into Egypt. They had defeated Egypt. They were a cruel people, cruel in their tyranny over other nations and what they would do to them. But the Lord destroyed them utterly, utterly, just as we're going to read. And you need to know that. The little book of Nahum, I know that sometimes when you go into the minor prophets, you may not know exactly what's being taught, but we want to understand this simple little book. God raised up a man to encourage Judah that though the Assyrian Empire had taken the ten tribes captive and had permanently deported them, that would be unnerving. If you were a Jew, to know that ten of your twelve tribes had been defeated and taken captive and deported out of Israel by these kings, Shalmaneser of the Assyrian Empire, that would be undermining to your faith. And so God raised up Nahum to encourage the Jews still left in Judah that he would deliver them. We are more familiar with Babylon for a good reason. We are familiar with Babylon because Babylon took Judah captive and Judah came back after 70 years and it was out of Judah that our Lord sprang. So we're more familiar with Babylon. But we don't want to overlook Nineveh because two books of the Bible are dedicated to that city. Now, Jonah went and preached not to the Jews about Nineveh. Jonah went and preached in Nineveh. He went all the way over to 250 miles north of Babylon and preached in this great city and told them in 40 days, unless you repent, God's going to burn this city up. And they repented. My children asked me, why did God send a prophet to that city? Some of the things of God we don't know for sure, but I can tell you a couple. The city on earth that would be the least likely to repent at preaching would have been Nineveh. Number two, it gave Jesus Christ a wonderful object lesson for the Jews when he preached in their day that the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, but you people aren't repenting at the preaching of the Son of God. And he can do things like that simply for an object lesson of that value because he's the God of glory. This little book, I want it to encourage your faith. I want it to swell your hearts. Do you know that it says in the Bible that when men are walking with God, they are lifted up in their hearts? Is your heart dragging? Is it cold? It should be lifted up. Repent for it right now. Choose to be thankful. Choose to be joyful. Today is a good day. Let us not mourn or weep. Let's be thankful that we're in the house of the Lord and that we have historical accounts like this given to us in the Bible. The Bible is full of information about the Assyrian Empire. We have many of their kings listed for us. We are told about their conquests. Their cities are listed. The the city of Nineveh was so great that it took three days to get around it. But I want to tell you something. The city of Nineveh was not discovered until 1850. Just 150 years ago, that large of a city was unknown to archaeologists. They read about it, 
Oh, they read in the annals of Egypt that Assyria had defeated them. They read about Nineveh in the annals of the Babylonian Empire, but they couldn't find it. Whenever you read in the newspaper or hear on the news about the city of Mosul, M-O-S-U-L in Iraq, where we have waged some of our battles, that is on the, the bank of the Tigris River, near where Nineveh was placed. In 1850, some archaeologists, and I tell you all this to glorify the God of heaven because he said he was going to leave the city nothing but heaps. Across the river from this city, an oil city of Iraq, were large mounds that appeared to be the natural landscape. So no one gave them much thought. They did digging around the city on the other side of the river. In 1850, a man thought we probably ought to look at these mounds, huge mounds. They found entire palace, palaces, temples, libraries. They found a library with 20,000 clay tablets in it that told about the things the Bible had already told us. Right. Just in the last 150 years, they've unearthed this huge city that guess how long it would take to get around if you considered a day's travel 20 miles. Three days. A huge parallelogram situated on the Tigris River. The God of heaven had snuffed them out of existence. And we can go back and look at it, but we have the book of Nahum that tells us all this in advance. And do you know what the Lord says about that in the book of Isaiah? He says, find me another God that can declare things before they come to pass. There is none like me. And he declared these things before they came to pass, and they did come to pass. And they came to pass gloriously. We believe every word of God. We believe every word of God is beneficial to us. For those of you that have read Nahum chapter 1, is this some of the most graphic, poetic, picturesque language you've ever read in the first six verses? I remember at the age of 18, by the grace of God, running into a couple of young men at a certain institution of higher learning where we weren't learning very much. But when we would get in our room together... We would look through the Bible for passages of Scripture that would exalt the God of heaven that we knew was greater because of what He had taught us in our hearts than what we were hearing from pulpits. Nahum chapter 1 was one of our favorite places to go. We love Nahum chapter 1 because of the way it describes the God of heaven and it tells us to put our trust in Him. That while He is great and terrible and furious and revenges against His enemies, He is a stronghold to those that put their trust in Him, and He is good. Our God is good. And so we read this little book and we study it and we find out what the Lord is teaching us here. World history is His story. It's God's story of raising up nations and throwing them down. For those of you that read 2 Kings 17, 18, or 19, last evening you found out that when Sennacherib was thinking himself so great, the Lord of hosts said, Hast thou not known... Hast thou not heard that you are nothing but what I had planned you to be and I raised you up simply to be my rod in my hand for the chastening of my people and as soon as I'm done with you, I'm going to crush you? Hast thou not known that? No, he didn't know it. But we knew it. We know it and God said it before it ever happened. And we can rejoice in Him. Never be afraid of anything. Do not fear in your lives. Put your trust in the Lord. He'll take care of you and deliver you. 
The more terrible the circumstances, the more glory He gets. Put your trust in Him. Delight in Him. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Can you delight in a God that slew 185,000 Assyrian battle-hardened soldiers in one night? Glorify Him. He will come to your delivery as well. Deliverance. If you looked at the map and saw the expanse of the Assyrian Empire, which they made their boast of as they stood outside the city walls of Jerusalem, Rabshake would stand there and list off the cities and the kingdoms and the nations that his fathers, Sennacherib, Shalmaneser, and others had destroyed. A huge empire. And there in the middle of it was that little tiny circle called Judah. They had surrounded Judah They had taken the ten tribes captive. They had taken the fenced cities of Judah. And now they were at the wall of Jerusalem telling those inhabitants of Jerusalem not to trust in Hezekiah or Hezekiah's God because there would be none to deliver them. When you see that overwhelming enemy and a little tiny Judah, you wonder how in the world can they escape. But the Lord was on their side. And when the devil tries to tell you, how will you escape? The Lord is on your side. Put your trust in Him, because He will deliver you. Is there a lesson in this book? Though your circumstances may appear overwhelmingly difficult, God can deliver you. If this book deserves verse 15 of chapter 1, which says how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good tidings of glad things. If this book deserves that, how much more does the New Testament deserve those words for the deliverance Jesus Christ has wrought for us from sin, death, hell, and the devil himself? We have more to be thankful for. If this stirs you up, let the gospel of Jesus Christ stir you up because he has won a victory for us. We were inside the city walls, not of Jerusalem, but of Nineveh. And the devil was our king. There is a king that rules over that kingdom. His name is Apollyon and Abaddon. But the Lord Jesus Christ came and delivered us out of that city, from his kingdom, out of the power of darkness, and put us into his own kingdom, and made us the children of God forever. And Jesus Christ will take us to heaven to be with him forever. Let's come to this little book and see what we can read about the God of heaven. I trust that you delight in acquainting yourself with Him. Amen. Job 22:21 says, Acquaint now thyself with Him. How do you get acquainted with God? You go into the Word of God and read what He is like to His enemies. And here is what He's like to His enemies. Verse 1 of Nahum chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The first four words tell us what it's about. The words, the burden of, mean God's judgment upon. You will find in your Bibles the burden of Moab, the burden of Egypt, the burden of Samaria. And what those mean is God's judgment coming upon Moab, God's judgment coming upon Egypt, God's judgment coming upon Samaria. And in this case, it's God's judgment coming upon the great capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh. The burden of Nineveh. Jonah went and preached inside the city, 150 years before this prophet. 
150 years before Hezekiah faced the Assyrian army. They repented for a short while. God had mercy upon them. They went right back to their wickedness and idolatry and cruelty, including the destruction of the ten tribes of Israel. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. We are told nothing else in the Bible about this prophet. You know, when you read the book of Jonah, you can go find Jonah in the book of Kings, and you can find it exactly when he was prophesying. Nahum, we got to derive it by looking at the circumstances of the Assyrians and Judah, and then look at what the book itself says, but we don't, we don't know anything else about this man. And for us to speculate, and men have spent pages and pages speculating on what an Elkishite may mean. And if you saw all their variety of opinions, you'd be consternated yourself. It doesn't matter. God the Holy Spirit's the author. Nahum the prophet was the scribe that put these words down for the comfort of Judah. We know it's the comfort of Judah because he tells us that in various places throughout this short prophecy. Israel was already gone, so he's comforting Judah that what's happened to Israel will not happen to you because God would deliver them. You know, when you look in the Bible, you can find Nineveh as early as Genesis chapter 10 because Nineveh was founded by one of the sons of Nimrod as they came up out of the kingdom of Babel. Asher went forth and founded Nineveh. You can read that as early as Genesis chapter 10, right after the Tower of Babel, we have this city being planted. And when we see that great city develop, then be destroyed by the God of heaven and obliterated from under heaven so that it couldn't even be found until recently, we look at the great cities of our earth that have no place for the God of heaven, and the God of heaven is able to obliterate them. Right. New York City is no problem for the God of heaven. Amen. Tokyo, Japan, Moscow, Russia, or Sao Paulo, Brazil... No problem for the God of heaven. We come to verse 2, and verses 2 through 6 tell us about God's terribleness in judging his enemies. And this is prophetic language. It is very picturesque, graphic, and powerful. And you should delight in these words because this is our God. This God is our Father. He delights in us. He loves to protect us, and He loves to revenge us against any enemies. Acquaint now thyself with Him. Be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Verse 2 of Nahum, chapter 1. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. We have verses like this in the Bible. And the revenge and the jealousy is God against the spiritual adultery of his children. Then the words are terrifying. When God speaks of his jealousy in Exodus 34 and verse 14, he is speaking of he will not allow you to have any other God before you. He will jealously revenge any spiritual adultery you commit. But in this verse, this verse isn't to terrify the people of God. This verse was to encourage and comfort them because the jealousy and the fury and the revenge here was against their enemies. As this book is, and as this first chapter is, God is jealous for the sake of His people, for His own glory and honor. 
and he revengeth. He is going to revenge what the Assyrians did to Israel and what they're threatening to do to Judah. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. When God gets furious, it is perfect fury. When men get furious, it is stupidity. Except in those rare cases where a man is righteously indignant about some sin. You know, when men get furious, their minds stop working. The more your adrenaline is pumping and the more anger that is running through your spirit, the less your mind is engaged. But when God gets furious, his mind is fully engaged, fully calculating, and will accomplish all his purposes. It will not be a blast of hot air. It will be calculated and purposed judgment against his enemies. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord was furious about the words of Rabshakeh. The Lord was furious about the cruelty of the Assyrian Empire. The Lord was furious about Sennacherib's arrogant and haughty statements against the God of the Bible and against Hezekiah and against the city of his temple and against his temple and against his worship and against the ten tribes. He was angry and furious and he was going to revenge. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. God is so calculating. The God of the Bible is so calculating in his vengeance and wrath that he actually has told us in the Bible that he holds off his wrath so that it can accumulate greater. He told Moses, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. He was going to give them more time to fill up their sins as he did the Jewish nation until he came in fury and judged them. The Amorites and then the Jews themselves in his fury. He reserveth wrath. He holds it back until he unleashes it. And brethren, this is our God not doing this against us in this place, but doing this against his adversaries and his enemies. This is a father in whom you can put all your trust that he'll always deliver you. He can deliver you whether you're facing a Goliath or a King Saul or Absalom, your son, or the army of the Assyrians. Verse 3. We can't take too long on each verse. You don't need that. All you need to do is get, get the flow and get the picturesque language of God's greatness and power and might against his enemies. And imagine that you're in the city walls of Jerusalem and the Assyrians have taken captive the ten tribes. They've brought a huge army out of Nineveh, brought it 1,500 miles in the roundabout route into Palestine to come up, up against your city. And Nahum the prophet stands up, and this is how he starts preaching. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. That would be comforting to those that had their faith and trust in him and who knew something about the God of the Bible. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. What a verse. You should love these words. This is God describing himself. This isn't Nahum describing God. This is God describing God. God wants you to love these words. 
This describes the God we worship, our Father in heaven. The Lord is slow to anger. It doesn't say he's slack. It doesn't say he's slothful. He's slow by calculated design because he uses men. And when he's through using them, then he punishes them. He's slow to anger against his enemies, but he will by all means unleash that anger. And he is great in power. He will not at all acquit the wicked. There was no way Assyria was going to get out of trouble from God. He will not acquit. That is to just clear and say, okay, let bygones be bygones. It's over with you Assyrians. I'll let you go this time. He will by no means acquit the wicked. And Assyria had been wicked. He is great in power. And the description in this verse is, The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The Lord has an army of his own. Whirlwinds have terrified men from the beginning. The Bible speaks of them. Tornadoes and hurricanes are whirlwinds. They are winds that whirl around and do great damage. Our own nation in the year 2007 is still worried about tornadoes and hurricanes. If there's the possibility of one coming, they're worried. If one strikes, it does damage no matter how well we prepare for it. But the Lord has his way. The whirlwind, the tornado, the hurricane are just parts of his ways. He controls them. He moves them. He directs them. He's above them. There's no army of the Assyrians that would have stood and faced the whirlwind of God. They would have run with terror. And yet it was just one of his ways. God's way is in the whirlwind. He directs tornadoes and hurricanes. The clouds are the dust of his feet. When you think of an army on the march, you think of dust boiling up from all their feet and from the, the horses. But the Lord, the clouds are the dust of his feet. And if, for those of you who've seen a storm and the boiling of the clouds in a storm, that's the dust of the feet of the army of God coming. The picturesque language of a prophet comforting the Jews that though the army of the Assyrians looked great, the Lord God's army was greater. Amen. Verse 4, He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. God was able to dry up the Red Sea. God is able to dry up the water cycle, so that these very prosperous places languish. The providential direction of the water cycle by the God of heaven either blesses or curses a nation. And Elihu said in the book of Job, sometimes he does it against a nation, and sometimes he does it against a man. One man only. God will interrupt his water cycle to judge one man or to bless one man. And here, the prophet is describing the greatness of God and his great power by the fact that he can rebuke the sea. Stand up. You know, water is not used to standing up. Water is used to finding its own level and doing it rather quickly and rather efficiently. But when God rebukes water, it stands up and it stood up for Israel to walk through. He can dry up rivers. And these, the most prosperous places in the Middle East that the Bible speaks of repeatedly, God can make them languish. And though Assyria looked very prosperous if God spoke against it, it was going to languish. Verse 5, the mountains quake at him and the hills melt. And the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. 
you can look at a verse like this. When a prophet is speaking, you can think of specific events where God visited the earth and did these things. You also know that God does these things by His providence throughout the world. These are earthquakes and volcanoes. When hills melt and flow down in rivers of red-hot lava, hotter than anything you've ever been near, it's a, terrifying, it's a terrifying thing. But it's one of God's acts of power. If He can do that with a mountain, cause its top to blow off, and for it to regurgitate red-hot lava that can flow down, creating mudslides, landslides, and everything else as it burns away through anything in its path. He's certainly going to take care of the Assyrians. God is great. The mountains quake at Him. You can take it literally. Mount Sinai quaked exceedingly when God came down on top of it. But mountains quake. You know, we don't know what an earthquake is in South Carolina. But you need to talk to our little sister from California. She doesn't know what a tornado is. You know, we get the tornadoes. She got the earthquakes. She can tell you about standing in the house and feeling it start to rattle and all the light fixtures are shaking. We've, we don't know what that is, really. We get little tiny tremors once in a while that they think it's an earthquake. But, you know, you've seen pictures of California after a good earthquake. It kind of it messes up civil engineering. When highways buckle and bridges fall and different things happen, even though they've made those bridges to withstand everything that they can afford to withstand, still, this is what the, the mountains quake at him. And the hills melt. When there's an earthquake, do you know who has just ordered that mountain to quake? The God of heaven has told that mountain to quake. His way is in the whirlwind. His way is in the water cycle. And His way is in earthquakes and volcanoes. And when there's a shift of the ocean floor, that little tiny shift of the ocean floor three years ago that created that tsunami that raced across thousands of miles of ocean only this high doing 600 miles an hour. And when it came to shore, because there's no place for it to go down, it piles up and races inshore. The tsunami that wiped out 225,000 people in about 10 nations from three years ago. The Lord's in charge of all that. This is, these are evidences and tokens of His power. Do you like these verses? The mountains quake at Him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at His presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before His indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by Him. That's wonderful language. We need a song for Nahum 1.6. His anger is poured out like fire. The rocks are thrown down by Him. I don't care what if you're thinking about a landslide, an earthquake, a volcano, or Mount Sinai altogether shaking. The God of heaven, your heavenly Father, does this in the affairs of the world. And if He does this to mountains, no army of the Assyrians is going to pose Him any problem whatsoever. Who can stand before His indignation when the Lord is upset? Who is going to stand against Him? And Sennacherib had made him upset. He was angry. He was furious. And he was going to revenge. Thank you, blessed God, for such words. Why is it Nahum 1, 2 through 6 taught in Sunday school? 
Why don't they have flannel graph boards of a mountain spewing out lava that runs down and buries households while they're eating supper? Because they don't know the God of the Bible. You say, well, you don't need to teach children those kind of things. Oh, yes, you do. You don't want your children to be afraid of earthquakes or volcanoes because God is entirely in charge of them. And the God that can cause earthquakes and volcanoes can also deliver you from any predicament you can ever get yourself into. That's what we want our children to believe. Children, Nahum 1, 2 through 6, some wonderful words. Read it. Write it for me in a common meter song. I'll sing it with you. Delight in these words. This is the God we worship. This is our Heavenly Father. He will deliver you. He'll always deliver you. There's nothing too hard for Him. If someone's picking on you, God is furious about it. He will revenge. He may be slow in anger, but He will unleash His anger. He waited 120 years for the flood. Why? Because Noah needed to build the ark. Then He brought His judgment on the earth. Now after all those verses... After you read about how angry God is and how He jealousy is and how He revenges, we come to verse 7. It says, the Lord is good. Now wait a minute. I thought we were talking about anger, fury, revenge, rocks being thrown down and anger being poured out like fire. How can you say the Lord is good? Because verse 7 is to you and it's about you. Verses 2 through 6 are what He's going to do to those picking on you. The Lord is good. You believe that this morning. The Lord is good. He controls all these events. He has protected me from all these events. He will protect me forever because I'm His. I'm His child. He holds me in His bosom. He protects me under His wings. He holds His arms under me. He takes me by His hand. These are all Bible expressions of how the Lord leads and guides His children. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knoweth them that trust in Him. If you trust in Him, if you say to yourselves right now, this God of Nahum 1, I love. I adore this God. I trust Him. I trust Him in all these acts of His providence and of His judgment. I trust Him in the use of His fury and jealousy. He knows you. He knows you. And that doesn't mean He just knows about you. He knows you with loving favor, and He will be a stronghold for you in the day of trouble. Day of trouble coming? Not sure if it's going to be trouble or not. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Always trust in Him. He knoweth them that trust Him. Do you trust Him this morning? You know why we're together? We're together to increase each other's faith. We've come together so that when we walk out of these doors, our faith is renewed. It is strengthened. It is increased. That our Father in Heaven, the blessed God of Heaven and Earth, the Creator God, Jehovah Himself, the independent, self-existent One, is our God. He is our stronghold. And He knows us. Can a God that great know you? Oh, He does. And He has said, let me repeat it, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. If anyone else in this world says that to you, it doesn't mean a thing in comparison to God saying it. He will never leave us nor forsake us. 
And this is how he treats his enemies. This is how he treats our adversaries. This is how he will take care of you. Verse 7, stuck right there. Nahum unloads about the anger and jealousy of God against his enemies and then tells those Jews the Lord is good. The Lord is good. You know, the world would think we're absolutely nuts to talk about verses 2 through 6 and say the Lord is good. They would say the two can't go together. If he's so angry and so furious, how can he be good? Well, that's because he's angry and furious against our enemies. He's good to us. He's a stronghold for us. A stronghold. Hezekiah, don't you worry. You Jews in Jerusalem, those, those walls of Jerusalem aren't going to keep you safe. But the stronghold of the Lord Himself will keep you safe. Amen. The Lord is good, it says in verse 7. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knoweth them that trust in Him. That verse is stuck right in the middle of His judgment against the Assyrians for the comfort of your soul. One verse by the Holy Spirit. Stuck right in there at verse 7. Because verse 8 resumes right where we left off with verse 6. But, in distinction to that goodness of God toward His people, but, with an overrunning flood, He will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue His enemies. God was going to bring an overwhelming flood and wash away what? what what's the, the burden of? Nineveh. He would wash away the place of Nineveh. That exceeding great city the Bible describes. That city that couldn't even be found until the last 150 years. With an overrunning flood he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Confusion. Dysfunction. Fear. Trouble. Is all intended by the word darkness. This is what God would bring upon Nineveh. Verses 2 through 6 were God's general treatment of His enemies. Verse 7 was comfort to us and to the Jews. Beginning at verse 8, we have the specific prophecies being laid down of what God was going to do to Nineveh and one man coming out of Nineveh. But verse 8, with an overrunning flood, He will make an utter end of the place thereof. I'm not going to get off into history. You know, we could take, we could take weeks talking about the historical decline of Assyria and how it was overrun, just go home and punch in Assyria into Google and read about it. Because you're going to read that there was an overrunning flood at the end as the Assyrians were overwhelmed by the Scythians and the Babylonians and the Medes who all got together and said, we're tired of this place, and they overran it. There was no, they could not resist it. Egypt on one, on one front was opposing them and took back their territory. And then those nations banded together and overran Nineveh and just buried it. And it's been buried for 2,500 years. Verse 9, What do ye imagine against the Lord? The Lord that we've just read about in verses 2 through 6. What do ye imagine against the Lord? This is against the haughty statements of the Assyrians and of Sennacherib. He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. When God changes His treatment of the Assyrian Empire, He had blessed them. He had prospered them. He had given them military victories as they overran the known earth because He was using them. 
But as soon as he was done using them, he was going to afflict them and destroy them. But look what it says. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. I won't have to do it twice. I'll just do it once because he's going to make an utter end of the place thereof in verse 8. And he will make an utter end in verse 9. An utter end of something means there is no more of it. And so if there's no more of it, there's no more need for God to afflict it any further. His affliction will be so terrible and will make such an utter end of it and be such an overrunning flood to wipe away that place, he won't have to have another one. So the comfort is given to the Jews about what's going to happen to Assyria. Verse 10, For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. This is continuing verses 8 and 9 in using other figures of speech to picture the Assyrians. The Bible uses thorns as a picture of wicked men. Do you remember in 2 Samuel 23, verses 5 and 6, where God says a man needs to be fenced in order to take care of the thorns, the sons of Belial that he runs into? What do you do when you've got thorns? You press them all together because they will cling to each other if you press them tight together. Those little thorns that are so prickly to you will grasp each other's branches and so you can bundle them together to throw them into a fire. For while they be folded together as thorns, while they're all united and they're collapsing in on each other toward the end of their empire, they could not defend such wide expanses. They had to collapse in upon themselves. And while they are drunken as drunkards, they had no sense about them. They were so haughty in their conquests. And the Lord describes that as being drunk. And they did a lot of drinking. You can read about it in their history and in the Bible. You can read about Ben Hayden drinking himself drunk in his pavilion. He was a Syrian. That, the, that, that empire was absorbed by the Assyrians. So there they are, all collapsing in on each other and held together like thorns are, prepared for the fire. And they're drunken as drunkards. They don't even know what's about to happen to them. They shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry. These are similes. Remember what you were taught in English? Whenever you see the word like or the word as... It's a word picture, a comparison being made of how the Lord is looking at these people. He's looking at them like a bunch of thorns that he's pressed together to throw in one big heap into the fire. He's looking at them like a bunch of drunkards who don't even know what's going on and what he's going to do to them. And he's going to burn them up like stubble that is fully dry. The chaff that is taken from the wheat, the husk, the, the outside of grains, that, or the stubble in the ground after a cutting, that is just totally dry at the end of a season, a match lit in that burns it up immediately. Fully dry, it's going to be consumed. There'll be an utter end of Assyria. Now you look at the map, and you see Assyria this big, Judah this big, in the middle of it, fully surrounded, and you say, how how will we escape? And the Lord said, I'm going to fold them all together like a bunch of thorns. They aren't going to have any more sense about what I'm doing than a bunch of drunkards. And I'm going to burn them up like a bunch of stubble that is fully dry. I will make an utter end of them, and I will overwhelm them with a flood of judgment. You want to read history? You, you're, you just read history. This is his story of what he does with nations and empires. Verse 11. 
There is one come out of thee. One came out of Nineveh. One man came out of Nineveh with the biggest mouth. You read about him in 2 Kings 17, 18, and 19. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And if you read those chapters, you read over and over and over his blasphemous arrogance against the God of heaven. He used the name of Jehovah. He profaned the name of Jehovah. He profaned Jerusalem and the worship of God there in the temple of God. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. This is Sennacherib, and his mouthpiece is Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh wasn't intelligent enough for his own work. He was a mouthpiece for Sennacherib. You read about it in those chapters. Sennacherib was laying siege to another city, and he sent Rabshakeh to threaten Hezekiah because he thought Hezekiah would cave in and they wouldn't even have to fight because Hezekiah had shown some weakness up front by paying him off the first time, if you recall. Verse 12, Thus saith the Lord. And we saw that a few times in those chapters you read as well. When Sennacherib was saying his great things against the God of heaven, the Lord of heaven had something to say against him. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, the they is the many of Nineveh, the Assyrians, though they be quiet. What, What does it mean when it says that they are quiet? They're free from fear. They're free from trouble. Their lives are quite quiet. They've been prosperous so far. Though they be quiet, and likewise many, though a very numerous host and a huge army was brought against Jerusalem, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. The he, a singular male pronoun, referring back to the previous verse, Sennacherib. Sennacherib never shot an arrow at Jerusalem. He never entered the city. He never got into battle with it. He came into their territory and shot his mouth off about them, and he, had, and he passed right on back out of the land and went right back to Nineveh. He, if you go look at a map, you cannot, there is not a direct route between Nineveh and Jerusalem because it's desert. The, the long route he had to take, he passed through the land without fighting it without fighting against Jerusalem, just as God had promised Hezekiah, not an arrow will be shot against this city. When he, the he we've already had given to us in verse 11, there is one that is coming out of Nineveh that imagines evil against the Lord. And so the Lord says in verse 12, though they be quiet, though they have such confidence that they can make fun of you. You know how much fun they made of the Jews that were sitting on the wall. Rabshakeh said, listen, you guys can't fight. We'll put up the horses. We'll put up 2,000 horses. Can you put men on them? Then maybe we can have a battle. Quit telling me not to speak in your language. I want the men on that city wall to know that when we get done with this siege, they'll be eating their own dung and drinking their own piss. He shot off his mouth for Sennacherib, his boss. And the Lord said, though they be quiet... That means free from trouble and evil. Though they look like everything's in their favor, and likewise many, their very numerous army, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. They'll be cut down like a bunch of thorns put together and drunken as drunkards 
and burned up like stubble that is fully dry. And then he says to Israel, Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. I will not trouble you any more with these wicked enemies. I will cut them down when he shall pass through. Verse 13, For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. That poor nation of Judah had to pay tribute. You can read about Hezekiah cut the gold off the doors of the temple to buy off Sennacherib. They were under tribute to this foreign power. That was a bond that was upon them. That was a yoke that was upon them, and the Lord was going to break it off. That great big Assyrian empire, little tiny Judah, great big troubles in your life, little tiny you, God can deliver you. I Now is the time. Now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. The thee, singular person, Sennacherib, I, the Lord, hath given a commandment concerning thee. You have opened your mouth against me, This is what I've purposed against you, that no more of thy name be sown. Your name will never be spoken again in glory and praise for your military accomplishments. Because that man lost 185,000 soldiers that didn't even engage in battle. And he retreated back to to the capital city of Nineveh where his gods, his graven image and his molten images could not help him in the house of Nisroch his god I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. I'll get you back to where you trust. I will cut them off. They will not be able to help you. I will visit you in your own temple by your own sons, and they'll kill you. I will make your grave, because thou art vile. And if you read those chapters, you know he was vile. And you understand these words. That Nahum spoke in the burden of Nineveh. And who was the king of Nineveh? In the days of Hezekiah, when the Lord said, The daughter of Zion hath despised thee. Are you a little girl? Take comfort in those words. The daughter of Zion hath despised thee. It doesn't matter how great the enemy might be, the Lord will deliver those that put their trust in him. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Thank you, Lord, for the exclamation point in a King James Bible. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. That for those first 14 verses are good tidings. They're wonderful tidings. Those scared Jews in the city of Jerusalem were going to be delivered. God was angry for them. God was angry against their enemies. The Lord is good towards you. The Lord is your stronghold. In a day of trouble, he's going to deliver you. He knows those that put their trust in him. Here's what he's going to do to the Assyrians. Here's what he's going to do to Sennacherib. He considers him vile. He's going to make his grave. He's going to cut him off. He's just going to pass right on through Judah and go right on back home. Because the Lord is going to move against him. And so we have the words, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings that publisheth peace. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10 takes Isaiah 52 and verse 7 
which is a twin to this verse, and uses it for the gospel. Because, think about it, if the feet of Nahum and the feet of Isaiah were beautiful in pronouncing judgment against the Assyrians, how much more beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and tell us glad tidings about Jesus delivering us not from Sennacherib, but from Abaddon. Not from Shalmaneser, but from Apollyon, the king of the bottomless pit. The Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from all that. So the Apostle Paul took this by the Spirit of God and elevated it a great deal from what it means right here. What it intends right here is the news of God destroying the Assyrians was wonderful news. And how beautiful the feet of those that preached it. And how beautiful and wonderful to hear such good tidings that the Assyrians were going to be wiped out. Sennacherib killed. Jerusalem delivered. The bond and yoke broken. But brethren, what about our bond and yoke? Yoked up by the devil. Held under the bondage of sin. Condemned to death. The Lord Jesus Christ rode up to that city where we were kept captive and spoke peace for us. And He's going to destroy His enemies. He has made an open show of the devil triumphing over the devil on what He did at the cross. He destroyed the devil when the devil thought he had him at his weakest moment. He has delivered us. And the Gospel brings a message of deliverance far greater than the deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrians. It tells the deliverance of God's elect from their sins and the claims of the devil and from the power of darkness and His kingdom into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He hath translated us. He's saved us. He's redeemed us. He's bought us. He's adopted us. He's purchased us. He's justified us. He's sanctified us. Remember all those facets of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ has done them all for us. There is no captain. There is no general like the Lord of hosts. And the Lord Jesus Christ has that role at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is our Savior. And how beautiful are those that have preached to us the tidings that death has been defeated. The grave has been conquered. Sin is no more. Legally and soon to be finally in the presence of God. What should the effect be? The same effect that it was supposed to be for the Jews. Look at the last sentence of the chapter. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts. Perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Sennacherib and the Assyrians would not pass through Judah again. They were utterly cut off. Now another enemy was going to come because these people did not keep that last sentence. Babylon would come and Nebuchadnezzar would level the city of Jerusalem. But look at the effect that chapter should have had on them. Oh, Judah, keep the solemn feast. And we're here today to have a solemn feast, not with food, but with the Word of God, with, our, with each other, with the Holy Spirit of God. As, as I already mentioned once, Nehemiah told the people, do not mourn, do not weep. This is a day holy to the Lord. Let's celebrate and thank Him for what He's done for us. Let's revel that our brethren, in that little circle of Judah, surrounded by the Assyrians, were delivered by the mighty God, the high God, who is jealous and angry and furious 
and revengeth against his enemies. But more than that, we have been delivered ourselves from sin, from death, from hell, the lake of fire, the second death, from the devil himself. We have so much to be thankful for. We want to rejoice in our hearts, rejoice in our singing, rejoice in our fellowship with each other. And this last sentence is what the Lord wants from us. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows. Worship me, thank me, praise me, magnify me, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And Sennacherib was cut off. And you know what? The devil himself that took our first parents and got us under the claim of God's law and brought death upon all men has been utterly cut off. An open show of him was made and the Lord has defeated him and delivered us out of his kingdom. We shall live and reign as kings and priests with Jesus Christ forever delivered from all our enemies. Enemies that were far greater than Sennacherib and the Assyrians. The Lord's delivered us. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Rejoice, the Lord is King and Savior of your soul. He has delivered you. He'll never lose you. He is yours and He loves it when you trust in Him and delight in Him. May the Lord bless. Nahum chapter 1 to the encouragement of your hearts and souls and the building up of your faith.